Well, hello, everyone. It's Monique DeMeo, and you are joining Possibilities. First podcast ever. This is so much fun. I'm super excited to have with me today Donna Gould, who is my leadoff hitter, who's talking about your voice, your authentic voice, and how being your authentic self is so important. Who doesn't want to hear that? Welcome, Donna. Hello, Monique. So happy. How are you, honey? Uh, this is exciting. I wish you were in front of me because I'd be giving you a big fat hug. <laughs> well, this will do for now. <laughs> <laughs> we have a, a brain check on a on a face to face. So to give the the listeners and the viewers context for our story here, part of the book, The Seven Secrets to Designing a Life You Love and a Practical Guide for Women in Leadership, which you may know is the book that is being launched in September, and it may be at the same time as this podcast for all I know. But right now, chapter one talks about authentic voice. And Donna and myself came up through the ranks in about the same time frame in the 80s and some partial, partially the 90s. And Donna talks about her journey in getting her authentic voice. And I want to ask her about the importance of being authentic in life just overall? Well, I think you do a terrific job in the chapter of talking about what, what I think there's one point where it says something like, so what's the big deal about being authentic? And I, I'm someone who I've always felt like I was living a life that reflected who I am. I've never thought I was someone who was pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. But when I look back on some of the choices I made and the times in my career where I, I know I think I say I felt like a chameleon so much of the time where I was constantly needing to sort of act a certain way, say certain things, fit in. You know, I am a people pleaser by nature, so make other people happy. Didn't want anybody not to like me, that's for certain. And thought there were a lot of things I needed to do in order to succeed. The result of that really was that I was not always happy. And you know, happy is such a, it sounds like such a silly word to use, but I was not comfortable in, in my own skin. And there were a lot of situations I would find myself in where I would realize that. And I would tell myself that, you know, it wasn't a big deal or, you know, it was helping me get to where I wanted to go. And it wasn't until... I, I finally left, a, I guess, what people would consider, you know, a full-time career working for somebody else and starting my own business for the second time that I found myself at a place where I was realizing that I wasn't doing what I felt like I was really put here to do or, or what, you know, I, I don't want to use that word, you know, pursuing my passion because that's got, that's fraught with its own dangers, right? When you when you really you know, slice and dice that. But um, I reached a point where I realized I was not saying what I really had to say all the time. I was editing myself a lot. I was making choices based on what I thought other people wanted and expected of me. And um, as you well know, when I started this business, really just focusing on storytelling and, and, and writing, I specifically wanted to work with women business owners because I knew I wasn't alone in that. You know, I, I kept encountering women who had their own businesses, had been successful entrepreneurs for a while. When it came to marketing, they would often say things like, well, you know, I, I'd like to say this, but I can't. Or <laughs> there's all these rules about marketing I have to follow. And, you know, I, I, I can't say that, or I'm going to offend someone. I can't say that. My response was always, well, who told you you couldn't say that? And of course, my realization is there are, there are a lot of expectations and people in our lives who make us feel like we can't say that. And what we know is that men don't have that kind of hesitation. And so I, I really focused my practice on kind of giving women permission not just to say what they wanted to say, but to show up as who they they really are. And not just as business owners, but, you know, as real live human beings, you know, we know as marketing professionals that that's, that's what resonates with clients and customers. People want to know you're, you're real. They want to know you're not 
actual human being, not, you know, some airbrushed version of, you know, who you, who you want them to think you are. And as luck or the universe would have it, the more I worked with other women to help them find and express their own voices, the more I realized I was finding my own. And I had to walk my talk and show up as who I really was and be honest and open in order to, to you know, sort of not just attract the clients and customers I wanted, but to, to make people feel comfortable with me. People often ask me, why do you think people tell you things that they would never tell anybody else? Which is true. Uh, why do you think people feel so comfortable talking with you? And I honestly think it's because I show up. That's how I show up. Agreed. And I think that's why we had kind of a connection when we first met. I think that I, I felt you were very authentic and real. And I think there was no debate that I was not going to be anybody but myself. At that point, I had had, <laughs> I'd had my aha moment, and I was like, I was in the effort moment, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the effort stage of our lives. Which, by the way, ladies, if you're listening starts to happen in your 40s and solidifies significantly in your 50s. And by that time, you don't care what people think of you. At least that's been my experience. I'd like you to talk about your early career. And there's a there's a line that you told me that I put in the book, for those of you who haven't read it, and it's just mind-blowing what you were told why you couldn't run a division. I just think that's awesome. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Give us context to the audience. So the first probably like 15 or so years of my career, I worked first in retail advertising, and then I worked in marketing for a textile trade association in the city. And at that point in time, which is, you know, back in the 80s, I'm guessing, uh, for the most part, it was a very male-dominated industry. And... The majority of the time I would show up at a meeting or a conference or sitting around the table in a conference room with, you know, with executives, I was the only woman in the room. And I, I'm not, I'm not a, um, I mean, I am a feminist. I I grew up as, as, you know, as someone who was fortunate enough to have really strong women leaders ahead of us. And I had great women bosses throughout my career. I have to say, I'm very blessed that way. Um, and I love working with men. I am one of those women that really feels companies benefit from having a balance of both men and women because I, I just I just think it it produces a better result all around for everyone. You get a real diverse mix of views and and opinions and approaches. I kind of early on realized that for me, the way I was going to succeed in that field of 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 testosterone, was to not try to be one of them, which was the advice we always got as young women, you know, fit in, pretend you're a guy, act like a guy. I think I recognized really early on that being a woman had a lot of advantages and that I could use it to kind of work around things or work through things or... Give us examples of that. I think that we're we're at the 10,000 foot view and I think I want... The listeners who are younger than us to appreciate what you mean by work through and work around and what is it that you think you had the liberty to say or do just because you were a woman? Well, first of all, the fact that I was the only woman, I was also for the most part much younger than many of the men in positions of leadership at that trade association. I I was one of the rising stars, so I kind of advanced through the ranks relatively quickly, and I had a lot of visibility. People noticed me when they walked into a room. How could they not? (laughs) Right? Uh, You know, for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, I got people's attention. And I, I have to say, and this is not to brag, but I also realized I was much smarter than a lot of people in the room. You know, I, I am someone who has always erred on the side of, you know, leading with my gut and my heart. And I, I used my intuition to kind of read the room. I would hang back and not always be the first person to speak or the first person to give an opinion. I would let them go first as a kind of a sign of respect, but also as a way of gauging 
what was the temperature in the room? What what were the positions that the power? felt like, yeah, that they weren't going to budge on? Where might there be opportunities to get them to shift their you know, opinion or see things a different way. And then I have a great sense of humor and I used humor. You know, there were a lot of sexist comments that would fly around the room when I'd walk in. And the one you're talking about was the single, you know, shining example of how it actually ultimately prevented me from having any more success. What were you told? Come on, tell tell the audience here because they, they, if they, don't read, they haven't read the book yet, it's a freaking mind blow, isn't it? <laughs> so the company I worked for was was global. It was headquarters in London. And the executive director resigned or retired and was replaced by a guy who had been some big shot at Procter and Gamble and was coming into this kind of sleeping off a profit trade association and gonna throw his weight around. And I was the president of the U.S. branch of that organization, which was one of the three largest branches out of 30-some-odd around the world. And I kind of got thrown into that position when my boss was fired and uh, in a massive layoff. And was I was kind of the easy solution to a problem that senior management was facing. But I had been running the organization for three years, and I was doing a really good job. The, the guy from Procter & Gamble was looking to kind of, I think, create his own leadership team, bring his own people in. And he flew over to the U.S. to meet with me, ostensibly, as it turned out, to tell me that he was going to replace me. Um, and he was going to offer me some sort of job in, in London as a consolation prize, knowing full well it was divorced, had a seven-year-old son. There's no way I was moving to, to London. And when I asked him, you know, sort of what what the issues were as a way of trying to understand maybe if there was a way to negotiate keeping my job. He said to me, well, quite frankly, young lady, you are just too young and your legs are too good for you to be taken seriously in a position like this. You know, it's in, in, a position that was clearly that big. What do you say to that? <laughs> I want to ask you what you said to that, because I'm not sure I'd be able to hold myself back. I mean, I will tell you, honestly, at that moment in time, I realized it was hopeless. Number one, that there was nothing I could say. And number two, I didn't want to work for someone like that. Right. I mean, that's I had an opinion about it, too. I didn't want to work with someone that was that misogynistic, you know, egotistical. I mean, the gentleman who ran the organization before him was one of the loveliest you know, men, people that I ever met in my entire career. And this guy was just the total opposite. For the record, I, I didn't accept <laughs> the job. And I was I was kind of slowly, the, the process of leaving took a couple months. And in that time, I did speak with an attorney and I, you know, I did talk about bringing legal action. But his advice to me was take the money and run. <laughs> I had a big severance. I had been with the company for a really long time, and I did take a big chunk of change with me. But it, it, um, you know, it was probably the the most dramatic of uh, years of situations like that that happened to me. And I, I guess every time I tried to learn from it. You know, that's my personality is to really. I don't believe that we ever make mistakes in any of the choices that we make in our lives and that every single one of them is an opportunity to learn and take us to the, the, the next adventure. But it took me over a year to really get past that because I, I had prior to that really always been able to, like I said, kind of work around, work through. I developed a lot of really great relationships with with those men in the room. They were my colleagues. And we had to be able to work together to, to get things done and to move the organization forward. It didn't sound like the guy that wanted to replace you had a sense of humor either. No, he took himself very seriously. <laughs> yes, of course he did. Of course he did. Too young, too cute, and too good legs, as a quote, is just mind-boggling. It's funny because I had a very similar, I think you know my story and, and it's parallel to yours in why I left 
Grand Week, which was like a dream job for me and started my own company because my bosses were complete sexist assholes. And I was treated very differently as the only executive woman, woman in the, on the executive team, the only woman on the executive team, I should say. And, you know, I'd get comments, you know, when I'd leave at 530, half day, Monique. And I'm like, okay, my numbers are up 45%. Like if you want to log in and, you know, whatever, check it out, but it's irrelevant, right? It was just this posturing of, no, you can't work from home one day a week because you have to hold down the fort while we go play golf. Isn't it astounding that given where every everyone, men and women have come to at this point in time, that we women still deal with that? Absolutely. Um, Cara Jane, who will be interviewed a little later in the process because she talks about her external narrative and she talks about, you know, how her daughter is facing the same stuff that, you know, that she and I and you did. But the thing is that they see light at the end of the tunnel because they see us as having succeeded to some extent in, in our own context and our own voices and authenticity, but they have to go through it themselves. And it's harder because they see possibility. We did not. So in some ways, it's harder for a, a young woman like my daughter who's going through it. She's 26 and she knows she, in the industry that she's in, she's in theater. And in the industry she's in, it's every industry is sort of we could talk about male domination, but she sees how much harder she's always had to work harder. Right. It's just this is the way it is. I was raised by a terrific mom who was not allowed to work when we were growing up. My dad was having none of that. And she wanted her daughters to have a different choice in life. Um, so I was raised to believe that it was possible for me to do the things that I dreamed of doing and get an education, right? That was the thing. You get an education to be able to make a choice and do what you want to do. And, and, and to a large extent for me, that was true. Even though my chosen career was really what I majored in in college, it certainly paved the way and gave me four years to really build up the confidence to, to actually pursue a dream. I do think that women today, and again, it depends on how old they are at this stage of the game, have grown up with a, a sense of that anything is possible. Whereas for us, it was you always felt like you were climbing, you were climbing a ladder to get to something. They already... They, they already just believe they can just walk out the door and it's a level playing field. And of course, it's kind of a shock to find out in some cases that it's not. But I think what's exciting is the number of women that are just forging their own path, starting their own businesses, you know, being entrepreneurial at a very young age. I mean, an age I would have never dared <laughs> or would have never had the confidence in myself to do. And, and I think that that is, um, and they are who they are. You know, I think they are. I think that women, young women today, they don't take a lot of crap. So for me, it's very bifurcated what I see. I think that there's an entire group of young women who are in, in what, you know, Karen, who's, who I'm also going to interview is, a, is in a compare and despair culture with social media and, and the, the, the need or the expectation that their lives are supposed to be perfect, that they're supposed to look a certain way, that they're supposed to act a certain way. There is the pressure of excelling and looking like you have it all figured out when they really don't. And there's no one has it all figured out. So the notion of having to express that visually in the world, even when it's not the reality that's behind the scenes, that's pressure. And then there's another half of them who I, I mean, whether it's 50, 50, I'm not suggesting that I know the, the, the breakdown, but what I'm saying is there's very, two very different camps. And the other camp is I'm grounded in who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I know who I am and who I'm not and what I will and will not put up with. And some, sometimes it's almost, it's, it's excessive. It's like they come into a job expecting to be VP in a year. You know what I mean? I'm like, wait a second, you haven't paid your dues. So chill the F out. That is like the extreme on this side. And then the other side is, oh my God, you know, did you see her Instagram post? She has 10 million followers and I only have a thousand, you know, this kind of compare and despair. So uh, today's young women have a different kind of pressure, a different kind of awareness and a, and a different kind of possibility in their lives. And I think we're on the same page that 
they see more like, of course I can do that because they see women on boards. They see women presidents of organizations. We didn't have any of that. When was the last time you looked at a, a publicly traded company and saw a CEO or somebody on the board of advisors, board of directors, C-suite, any of it? Zero. Like, I think there might have been one CMO at Pepsi and whatever. I, she was lovely. But that's it. Like, there wasn't that to, to model. And honestly, the, one of the re- main reasons why I wrote the book is because I never had good female bosses. I never had a mentor that I could really point to. And I think that's egregious. Like, I can't even imagine going up, going up through the ranks today without somebody helping you out. I had no doors open for me. I had no, my bosses were men. And there was, I had great male bosses throughout the years, but they weren't mentors to me. They were transactional bosses. Well, and I think, yeah, that's, of course, the difference between men and women bosses in general, I think. I've had I actually had great bosses, period. Um, I had one. My worst boss was a woman. So my best boss, my best boss was a woman, and my worst boss was a woman. Uh, you know, just because we're women doesn't mean we're all, well, you know. No, we're just humans, right? Yeah. And of course, you know, as you know, because we're sort of contemporaries, um, it was a dog-eat-dog dog world for women trying to climb that ladder. And so we were not always uh, helpful in in bringing our colleagues along, but my, my best woman, woman boss, I will never forget. She, um, sat me down one day and she said, listen, I'm going for a promotion. And the best way for me to get a leg up is for me to take you right behind me. And so you need to like, you know, it was that thing of like, pull up your big girl pants, get your shit together. Because when I walk in and tell them I want that job, I'm going to recommend you to take mine. And that's, she did that Three times in a space of 15 years. She was definitely one of a kind. I will say that. <laughs> if you're out there, Judy McElvain, you changed my life. She was, she had confidence like no woman I had ever met before. And she was not anything like the sort of iconic women CEOs, you know, that that we see represented in, you know, in the media. She, she was she was astounding. And I, I learned. Yeah. Well, how was she astounding? I want to talk about that. Unpack that a little bit. What, what made her astounding? Well, first of all, she had this incredible confidence. She was smart. She was older than I was. And she was a woman who had chosen to kind of like become part of the boys club herself, was um, very outspoken. She was very ballsy. And, 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 you know, if you, if you weren't watching what was going on in the room, you were just listening, you wouldn't think there was a woman in the room. She's a very, very different personality than, than me, for sure, which was why she was such a good role model. Not that I, you know, I never became her. I, I, I just never assumed that type of personality. But she also was very, very grounded in her home life. She had a great marriage. Uh, she didn't have any children. She had a husband who adored her and was very supportive of her. And she had this inner strength that you just she 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 believed that she could do anything she set her mind to. That that's all there was to it. And she wasn't loud. She wasn't. She just kind of. It's it's kind of hard to put into words beyond what I've already said. And she would not take no for an answer. Love this woman. She's my sister. Yeah, she's a lot like you, Monique. (laughs) She's very low key. I mean, she would not toot her own horn. She was not somebody who, she was really there to make a difference for the company. You know, she was all about the company uh, and and making right choices and trying to help it grow. And, you know, we we were a very... um, public facing team. So we were out in the market all the time and representing an organization in a very visible way. So if you had to tell your younger Donna Gould self today, what you know now that you wish she knew then about authenticity and the importance of it and making the choices that you made ultimately where you were super, super happy, what would you say to her? Well, first of all, I would tell her to relax. I also lacked a tremendous amount of self-confidence growing up. And I would really want her to know that she 
was all the things that in her heart she knew she was, but um, had a hard time really truly believing that she was, I want her to know that she was smart and to trust that intuition because it was going to guide her in the directions and make choices that were going to really be the best choices for her and authentic to who she really was. And who was she really authentically, this younger Donna person? Oh, she was very dreamy and very artsy. I had a lot of strong opinions, but I grew up in an environment where you weren't allowed to express yourself. And so I, I, if you open your mouth, which, which not that I didn't ever, but when you did, uh, you got punished for it. You weren't allowed to have your own opinion about things. And, and you weren't allowed to express it unless you were asked specifically to give an opinion. <laughs> Sounds like my house. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot to, of that to, to overcome. It took decades. Like you said, for me, really in my 40s was, was when I kind of started to come into my own and make more choices for myself uh, rather than and worry less about what other people thought. Uh, and then, you know, really hit my stride in my 50s. And now, and I'm in my 60s, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I really don't. So freeing. It is freeing. And and I think, um, you know, I wish that she had had that insight. But I also know I am I am someone who truly believes that every all the choices I made, all the things that happened to me, the experiences, good, bad, and otherwise, have led me here and made me who I am today. And I there is a part of me that wouldn't tell her anything. Because I really don't think there are I, I always say I don't live with regrets, and I often think, well, if I could go back and change that, there's really nothing I would change. Um, because I love who I am and I love the life that I'm living now. And I, maybe I just had to go through all of that in order, you know, to, to arrive. Well, certainly not even just at this place. I mean, I think the last 20 years of my life, I've, I've been really happy. I say that too. It's funny. I, I, when you do any sort of, you know, self work on yourself and, and training and, all of this stuff that we do to become better versions of ourselves. You know, you talk about your journey and you talk about your childhood and you talk about sort of the, the big uh, moments that were not ideal and the hardships and the challenges and all of that stuff that we went through. But ultimately I came to the realization, you know, not just kind of recently in the last 10 years that without those challenges, without those overcoming those things, we wouldn't be who we are today. So in order for Monique to show up the way she shows up for you today, she had to be the five-year-old bullied kid. You know, she had to be the 10-year-old bullied kid. She had to, you know, be the immigrant and get picked on and have all this stuff happen in the family and all that turmoil because ultimately what created the drive to succeed and the overcome and I'm going to show them and I'm, you know, like all that stuff that you had to draw upon me. If I had a nice, cushy, you know, life where everything was handed to me, I'd be, I don't know, living on the streets for all I know. I have no idea. It's a follow-up chapter to the, you're too cute and your legs are too good to run a company story was that a year later, I launched my own business for the first time. And for 12 years, I ran my own company and did it really successfully. And the experiences and relationships that I made when I was doing that led me to exactly where I am today. And it was not a straight, I have never traveled a straight path. Again, I've made a lot of choices based on intuition. So it's not like I had this. You're a Pisces, Donna, you do that. (laughs) I didn't have a plan, really. I just kind of. Who has a plan? Yeah. Like, it's very clear to me that every single choice that I made, certainly career-wise. I've had to forgive myself for a lot of choices in my personal life I probably wish I hadn't made. But career-wise, every single choice I made led me to the last 10 years. I I, I don't think I've ever been happier career-wise. It's funny, we talk, Jennifer Faraday, who's also going to be interviewed, talks about her pivots. And she has, you know, she grew up in an Asian-American household where she was expected to have a linear path. 
you work hard at school, you get good grades, you get into a good college, you get a good job, you work up through the ranks, you, you know, da, 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 the usual. And she kind of went, you know, she had very different, she's the most educated person, one of the most educated people I know with certifications and degrees all from all over the, the place. And she masters the pivot much later in her life and has this epiphany that they all, every one of those pivots served her to be where she is today in the happiest place she's ever been. So you have to embrace the pivot. Definitely. And it's hard, it's hard for people. I have a sister I absolutely adore. And it's, it's, I see it's challenging for her. She's Pisces too, by the way. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, hard, it's hard for her. And she has a hard time forgiving herself uh, for some of the, the choices she's made that she, she sometimes wonders, you know, what if? And of course, you know, of course we all, I mean, I did have, I had an interesting conversation with my dad who, you know, was extremely difficult man. Um, but I remember when I, you know, I majored in fashion illustration in college and I had this dream of becoming this famous fashion illustrator in Manhattan, you know, that was the childhood dream. And when I got out of college, there, there were no jobs to be had. And I, again, started working in retail advertising and marketing and eventually learned all of that on the job. And, and I was, by all accounts, I mean, I, I was right, I was a president of that organization. I was 33 years old. You know, that was just unheard of. And, but I, I always had this thing, nagging thing in the back of my mind, like, what if I had made this other choice I had to be a freelancer? I need money. I, I was living on my own. I had to support myself. I, I thought I can't take a freelance job. Where's my next meal going to come from? And so I took the full-time job that led me ultimately to, to where I am now. And, I, and But I always somehow felt I had disappointed him because I wasn't doing what I was, quote unquote, supposed to be doing. Interesting that you thought you were disappointing him. Yeah, I thought I was disappointing him. Shocking. I, I've never forgotten. This is many, many years ago. He just looked at me and he said, well, are you happy? And I said, I love what I'm doing. And he said, well, clearly you're really good at it. So it looks like you've made the right choice. Wow. And that was the end of that conversation. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> and all those years you carried around the fact that you thought, again, the stories we tell ourselves, internal narrative, chapter five, that we have these stories that we convince ourselves to be a certain way because somebody's perception of our us is a certain way and therefore it is true. Well, and so, you know, we've talked about this many times over the years. So I, I, I call myself a storyteller. Um, I've been writing since I got my first diary when I was whatever, six years old, seven years old. And I, I do believe what a lot of people say, which is that uh, I guess the way I phrase it is our life is the sum total of the stories we choose to tell about it. And I think there's, you know, to go back to the, you know, why is it so important to be authentic? I think as we get older, it behooves us to be more honest in the stories we tell ourselves. And you can go back, you know, we're never, I think you say this in the, in the, in the book somewhere, you know, we're not stuck with this, ver this ver version, this story, this chapter. We're not stuck with those. Because we have the power to create those stories, we have the power to change those stories. We can revise those stories at any time we choose, right? It's a choice. We can choose how we show up. And we can also choose how we want to memorialize the things that go on in our lives that we turn into those stories. Now, you know, my dad was a very difficult dad. And that story is never going to change because it is what it is. And, you know, I have siblings <laughs> to corroborate it. So it wasn't made up. But how you chose. So the, cho the choosing part is how you chose to respond or to internalize or not internalize his crazy. Because my dad was an autocrat. No question. It was his way or the highway. There was no discussion. There was no debate. There was just like the raising of the eyebrow at the dinner table meant you were in deep trouble and you were going to get like severely punished. And there was no you don't take you didn't take him on. You didn't give him lip. If you gave him lip, you got a fat lip. So that was none of that. And, you know, it's funny because you play that back and you know, I look at the dynamic that I have with my kids and when they were younger and it was like they were giving me pushback on shit all the time because they felt grounded in the ability to do so. 
because they knew that the consequences couldn't have been as dire as mine would have been growing up. So they push. Well, and that's for, for me, that was, that was sort of his, his legacy for me was I refused to raise my own child that way. And, and ultimately I, I, it drove me into therapy or, or like ushered me into therapy. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of years working on making sure that I wasn't going to repeat a lot of the same behaviors that I would, that were modeled to me when I was growing up. But I think I have since revised a lot of the stories that I, I carried in me about my childhood. And, um, because I think the reality is in order to really survive that childhood and hang on to who I was and who I, I am that, that person today, I had to be incredibly strong. And I think when you asked me, how did I navigate, you know, working in that man's world or working in those difficult workplaces, I think my father taught me how to do that. I had to navigate those conference rooms the same way I had to navigate my living room, you know. So I want, I want to segue onto what you said into, you know, you can change your narrative anytime. And you know that I believe in the power of three. I talk about the power of three, the three words are behind my head. Be intentional, be grateful, be bold. And, you know, I set an alarm on my on my phone that has me remembering the three things I want to be in that and I've changed them over the years. These are, I think, are, are pretty you know, timeless for me right now. But I, my phone has the word patience in it because I, I have a tendency not to have a lot of patience. And sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing. But I, I'll remind myself, you know, be intentional, be happy, be patient. Oh, and then it rings at 11 o'clock in the morning or whatever. And I shut it off. But when as I shut it off, the alarm, because you can, by the way, people listening to this, you can rename your alarm on your phone, especially an iPhone. I don't know about a, uh, an Android phone, but the alarm will just come up as alarm and you can go on it and edit it and make it say whatever you want to say. It could say, you know, call grandma. But you, in this case, you could be this, be that, be that. I want to ask you, what are your... What's your new story, your new three words, your what do you want to be, the Donna Gould of today? What, what are her words? Well, the first word that comes to mind is compassionate. Be compassionate. Be kind to myself first and foremost, <laughs> um, but, but to be compassionate. I, I, patience has been one of my words for, for many, many years. And I, I think I've had a lack of compassion just because I've had a lack of patience. Um, <laughs> so too. patience is not one of my words today, but definitely um, com- compassion for myself, for others, for what other people are going through. And it just, be, you know, kind of reminds me to be kinder in the world. You know, I, I think it's, it's easier to be kind than it is to, to be nasty. So, you know, compassion for sure. My current favorite word is um, is playful. I've had a lot of things happen in my life in the last few years that um, have kind of taken the fun out of my days. And I, I have really given myself permission, particularly this year, um, to have more fun and to have a more playful approach to things, not take them so seriously. Um, it kind of goes back to that. What would I tell my 21 year old? So just relax, <laughs> have some fun. So compassionate, playful. I want to say real, be real. The, the whole showing up as your authentic thing is not, is not just a slam dunk. Uh, you know, if you're Monique, Jameo, <laughs> it is. Um, but it's, it is challenging for me on an ongoing basis to have the courage to say what I want to say to show up and, and be myself, even in the face of, of criticism. Um, or when I, I know I'm walking into an environment where I'm likely to slip into those old behaviors again, uh, and kind of hide myself in order just to get through something. I, I'm really just trying to make better choices about where I show up. Good for you. Cause you just told me about, I don't know, a couple minutes ago that you don't give a shit what people think of you. So there's no, it's true, you know, but those old stories die hard, right? It, <laughs> That's what therapy's for, isn't that? Yeah, but it it takes for me. I say it's it's a um, it's a lifetime's work to really overcome all those years of whatever happened in the past, and um, to remind myself. So even you know 
when I'm with good friends or people I trust or people I know really well, it's very easy. And when I'm with people I don't know at all, it's very easy because, like I said, I don't really care what they think. I, I don't need to make more friends. But I think what's hardest is um, when I'm, you know, I'm in a in an environment or in relationships where I I do want to nurture them, and I do. It's not that I want to be liked as much as I I want to be. I want to be someone that that those those people want to be with and want to get to know and want to spend time with. And so I'm likely to worry more about what I say or, you know, what comes out of my mouth at any given moment in time. Because I don't, I am not someone who likes to offend people um, or intentionally tries to offend people. I am a people pleaser. I think I will be a people pleaser till the day I die. That's, that's a great, that's a great segue. I think I want to leave, leave the audience with a little bit of, you know, the authentic self thing. We talked about it from a personal and professional perspective. I just want to unpack. Do we think that women in general have a problem reconciling their authentic selves between work and home? Do you think we show up the same way in both places? Well, the, the answer to the question is no. I, I think that women don't. I know I, I didn't. I do now, although again, I think if if you're a if you are a client of mine, I do have a professional self that when I'm working with a client, that professional self takes over in my personal life that that professional self doesn't exist but but that professional self isn't false it's just a it's just a um slightly more cautious and conscious version of myself, right? Um, I'm not, I'm no longer pretending to be someone I'm not. I, 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 life's too short, right? And that's not the nature of my business. If I'm going to help you show up as who you are, I have to show up. Um, but I do think I see it in the women that I work with. I, I see it in, in my friends. I think the way you talk about it in the book is very powerful. Um, because it's not a criticism, right? It's it's what we think we have to do to be successful or to have people like us or to have people respect us, to have people take us seriously. And um, like we were t- saying before, that in a lot of industries, a lot of verticals, women really can't be who they are. They, they, they don't, they, they're not encouraged to be who they are. Not in a corporate, a big, big corporate environment, I think. I think in in smaller environments and in consulting or thought leadership environments, like we get, you and I get paid for our expertise. So I'm going to say stuff that I could never say if I was a corporate employee getting paid by the big man. You know, if I worked for a Xerox or IBM or, you know, all the, some of the brands I can't really name that I work with today, my clients within those companies basically have muzzles on them. And I, I don't even know how they operate their day. I, I, I get apoplectic thinking about how many people are like converging over a project that is this big. It's just like, are you kidding me right now? But I think it goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning when I said that I, you know, I, I, I chose to focus my business on working with women because I felt they had specific challenges when it comes to marketing themselves and their businesses. And even entrepreneurs, people running their own businesses. I was thinking the other day about a client who was launching a business. And I think this is where I see it the most. If somebody's just starting out, or let's say they're they they're pivoting and they're they're you know moving in a different direction and launching something that they haven't tried before. There is this, this tendency to feel that they have to oversell their credentials. That they have to prove that they can do it by, you know, loading up their website content or their emails or their social with their credentials. I can't think of another word, you know, a better word to use, you know, what, how much they've done, what their, you know, their education and their work experience and all these things that, you know, I'll I'll say to them, with all due respect, no one cares because you're, you're, you're running a business. You're running a very successful business. And as you said, Monique, when people hire us, they hire us for our expertise. 
I said, so if you're launching your own, you know, acupuncture practice, yes, I want to know that maybe you have some experience, but I don't need to know every degree, every certification. 30 years ago, you graduated from wherever you've worked at. I don't need to know that because there's a certain level of trust that I'm bringing to the party here. I'm more interested in how you can help me. And I think that's that's probably the single biggest you know, thing that I bring to the, to the party when I work with clients is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not about, we don't have to prove ourselves over and over and over again. And I think the most spectacular thing about being the age that I am is that I'm really clear about that. I don't have to prove myself to anyone. And I, and I honestly, you know, don't have to prove myself to myself, although that's a daily conversation. So you're a tougher audience than most. I, I, I am. I am a much tougher audience. But yes, yeah, so even women who are running their own show are not always showing up as, as that person that they are in their non-working life. Um, and as women, marketing to women it's a, it's it's a dangerous thing because we want we want to see that authentic business owner entrepreneur that's how the world gets better yeah i come from a place of every one of us has a unique gift sometimes we figure it out sometimes we don't sometimes we have more than one unique gift but once we're clear about what that is we should show it and share it in the most genuine way we can that is what i'm clear about I am clear about that everyone has a gift to share. And if you spend your whole life looking for it, or at least somewhat pivoting and figuring it out, and then once you figure it out, you have to stick with it and you have to share it. And I'm just, I'm here. I think I'm pretty clear that the reason I'm here doing what I'm doing is that I want to create for future generations the stuff that we did not have when we were coming up through the ranks. That's what I'm clear about. And I won't take shit from nobody. (laughs) In that process, that's what we're going to do. We're going to change. Even if we change five lives, I'm good with that. Ten lives, 20. I mean, I'm a little more ambitious than that, but. First of all, I think on your on your your board behind you there, you need to have one of those things that says, don't take no shit from nobody. Number one. (laughs) I will do that. (laughs) And um, yeah. And number two. It can be scary to show it, even when you know what that gift is. It can be scary to show it. But who is it that says we don't do anyone any favors by playing small? Well, you know, there's a thing called, all right, so I'm going to wrap it up. But there's a thing called success tax that uh, Brendan Bouchard talks about when I went to his high performance academy. And he's right. It's like not everybody in your life, in your ecosystem, your circle, whatever you want to call it, is going to be happy for you when you come out with that. I know who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin. This is my journey. And this is who I am. A lot of people are going to be like, oh, shit, she's not the way I knew her to be when she was 20, 30, 40, whatever the age is or whatever the context that they knew you in. And sometimes you can intimidate the crap out of people. And that's okay too. They're not all going to be happy for you, people. Just understand that. Just understand right off the bat, you are not going to please 100% of the people 100% of the time. And nor should you try. Because if you do, you lose yourself in the process. Yeah, and I think you you talk about somewhere in the book about regrets, right? Those what are those five regrets? Those five regrets from Bonnie Ware. Yeah, yeah. The people that tell the hospice nurse what their regrets were as they're on the, their deathbeds. Yeah, and I, I, you know, you don't. Who wants to be on their deathbed and saying, "Jesus, I wish I'd been more myself." <laughs> you know, I wish I had, I had, you know, done more things to make myself happy, and I. I think that that's being able to come to that realization sooner rather than later. And, you know, you're, I mean, I applaud you for, you know, for, for the, the role that you're taking in, you know, and certainly when it comes to women, helping them, you know, get to that place, not just to realize it, but, and that's the thing about, you know, it's having a voice and using a voice, your voice are not exactly the same thing. Uh, so the first the first trick is finding it, but the, the the real power lies in having the courage to use it. That's really good. Thank you, Donna. So I think I want to wrap up today's episode with what we got from Donna and this conversation. And that is, you know, there is an enormous 
importance to having having and using very good distinction your authentic voice for both you the benefits of your life but also those around you because you're adding value to the people in your life whether it's personal or professional if you leverage and use your authentic voice because we all as i said before have a gift to share and you have to develop over the years and over your context and your experiences the confidence in leveraging those experiences to help others because as you help others it helps you and that gives you that personal growth both professionally and personally and allows you to create the less of a chameleon so you feel less inclined to change for the moment and more like i know who i am and i'm grounded in who i am and i'm comfortable standing on my own two feet change not changing my narrative because i'm in the room with 20 men. So that's what the takeaway from Donna's conversation is. She embraces the pivots. She's had no regrets on following her gut and taking a chance on things that people around her might've thought she was crazy to do, but she succeeded brilliantly and she's in a great place now. And have I forgotten anything in the net takeaways from our conversation, Donna? I want it to be clear that there was a lot of value here. (laughs) I think you got it. I think you got it all. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us today. Donna Gould, you are a rock star. I thank you for being part of my journey. And I love you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Possibilities with Monique DeMeo, where we unpack life as a female mover and shaker. If you like the show, please consider liking it or better still, subscribing to it and leaving us a rating. It truly does help. Also, you can pick up my book, The Seven Secrets to Creating a Life You Love, a practical guide for women in leadership. You can find the book, other episodes of this podcast, and how to stay in touch at moniquedemayo.com. D-E-M-A-I-O. I look forward to seeing you again soon. With gratitude, Monique.